the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss the new abortion law out of Texas. And then we're joined by veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service, Bob Smetana. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Happy Thursday. Glad to have you with us today. I want to start in Texas with this um, mm-hmm. with this new abortion bill that is just kind of got lighting Twitter on fire and that the is. news media on fire, depending on which side you are on. I want to start by hearing from Governor Abbott in Texas Uh, just kind of uh, at the signing ceremony for this new abortion bill. Our creators endowed us with the right to life, and yet millions of children lose their right to life every year because of abortion. In Texas, we work to save those lives. And that's exactly what the Texas legislature did this session. They work together on a bipartisan basis to pass a bill that I'm about to sign that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. All right, Aubrey, as you and I talked off air, there's lots of information, misinformation flying around. What really is this bill? Uh, and so I found this article helpful at Christian Headlines uh, about the bill. So basically, it's this. Uh, is any, th- this is basically stopping any abortions in the state of Texas, uh, six weeks or later, kind of when a heartbeat can be heard. And, uh, a lot of abortion clinics were asking the Supreme Court to block the law, and they have said that it prohibits 85% of abortions in the state. Wow. Uh, and so the law signed by Governor Abbott requires doctors to conduct a test for a fetal heartbeat if one is de- detected then the doctor is prohibited from performing an abortion. Uh, it does allow exceptions for medical emergencies. Up to Wednesday, Planned Parenthood clinics were not scheduling appointments for abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Uh, and here's really kind of the unique, important part that is getting a lot of the press right now. Uh, abortion groups have found the law difficult to challenge because it prohibits state officials from enforcing it. Mm. Instead, it allows citizens to sue abortion clinics that break the law. It says any person other than an officer or employee of a state or local government may bring civil action against any person who performs or induces an abortion in violation of the law. Those who sue and win would be awarded at least $10,000 per illegal uh, illegal abortion. And that's kind of the way that they've crafted this to make it harder for the higher courts to shut it down. And now Russell Moore wrote over Christianity Today, an article we will touch on here in a second, 
Uh, but Russell Moore wrote an article entitled, Is the Texas Heartbeat Bill the End of Roe versus Wade? He says, no, but it is a victory and it is a test run for pro-life Christians. So, Aubrey, that's a lot. There is a lot of emotion and a lot of confusion mm-hmm. over kind of like the you as a private citizen can sue and get money versus the state or the law bringing criminal charges. Uh, it's kind of the way around that Texas is going. But what are you hearing? What are you reading about this uh, about this bill? Yeah, I mean, I would say some of the information that I feel like is being spread, and I do think this is misinformation, is that, you know, now this means sort of just your regular average person can decide to be a vigilante and start going after women who are pursuing abortions. Mm-hmm. And um, according to the law, it's not that they can go after women. It's that citizens can sue those who are providing abortions after six weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think the heart behind that critique is most um, people are concerned that uh, sometimes pro-life movements or legislation does not consider the state of the woman and care for the woman. And as we've always said on the show, Brian, both matter. Like I am yes. pro-life as a Christian. That is that is rooted in my theology. Like that's just not an opinion. That's not a political statement. Like I believe God calls us to protect the vulnerable and the most vulnerable are unborn children. And I believe that God created every single child in his image and therefore they have dignity and value. And that's part of why as a Christian, I am pro-life. That said, I am so pro-woman. And so the church, while I I am for stricter uh, abortion, like anti-abortion legislation, Mm -hmm. I do want to see a stronger support for women um, so that maybe we get women where they're hurting, get women before they're even thinking about abortions and know that they're not alone. And so this isn't even an option for them. And so we have to do a better job. I think that's the cry of people's hearts. That's right. I also think there's misinformation happening. And I, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm a little bit shocked by some Christians who are, who are like opposing this. And Mm -hmm. I think I understand why, but I'm not sure if I, if they have the total picture. That's a good point. I uh, We're going to have an organization on here in another couple of weeks called Preborn doing exactly what you're talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. trying to uh, end abortions and support women. And that's why you and I are going to have them on the show here in a couple of weeks. Uh, but I think you put that well, Aubrey. You and I have talked about being um, very much anti-abortion, right. very much. And, and so I want to cheer this on. Any uh, legislation, in my opinion, that that makes abortion more restrictive uh, and saves the lives. You know, you see tweets inevitably after this, you know, um, it's just, you know, government over my body or this yeah. or that. And yeah. I want to be like, no, there's two bodies at play that's here. It. And that's the difference of how I see things. I know how you see things is that there are two lives at play here that we have to have that discussion uh, and figure it out. And I do think, Christians, we need to be reminded that to be pro-life is not just to be pro-life in the womb, but it is womb to tomb, as it is often said. That's right. And so if we're going to have more babies born, then the question uh, for Christians in Texas right now, but then nationwide as these kind of pop up more and more is, okay, church, here's your chance. That's right. What are we going to do? Uh, Let's put our money where our mouth is Mm -hmm. here. And so I want to cheer this on and say, okay, here's our opportunity. I I do want to read how how Russell Moore ends his article. He says, we will be 
uh, we will be seeking to persuade not only judges and justices or even just legislatures, but also all of our neighbors of a vision where human life is defined not by power or of useful or usefulness, but by intrinsic dignity. That will require those of us who are pro-life to be consistent in that vision and willing to break with our tribes and parties when they say human beings as dispensable or invisible. Mm. Nothing much happened as of midnight, August 31st, but maybe that moment can remind us that it is time to prepare for the morning whenever it comes. Moore does a great job of talking about wow. the, uh, the, the court case that's going to be before uh, Mississippi. Uh, and that that might be the one that the Supreme Court takes up. So people right now are being like, well, the Supreme Court didn't take it up. It's a victory. People like Russell Moore are like, well, let's just see. They might be just waiting That's for right. this next yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot still to go here, but we'd encourage you to read it. And those of you who are pro-life continue to be pro-life uh, uh, for babies. Let's save babies, but let's also... Uh, as these babies are born, yes. continue to be the church. Well, coming up next, Bob Smetana, veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Service. Bob is going to join us. And we're going to talk about all sorts of different things. We're going to talk about the NRB and Dan Darling and the vaccine kind of stuff that happened over the weekend. We're also going to talk about uh, a disruption at a mega church in Tennessee by an ex-pastor's wife. All sorts of craziness in the church world that Bob Smetana is going to help us unpack next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a real friend of the show. He's a veteran religion writer and national reporter for Religion News Service. Uh, his name is Bob Smetana. Bob, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, though. My car got stolen, so that was what? no fun. Okay. No, that's yeah. terrible. I was going to have you introduce yourself, but people know you, and we got to hear that story. Please yeah, no. tell. No, my, my uh, it's actually, it's kind of, it is a little bit funny and a little bit sad. My son-in-law borrowed the car. Uh, to go to work uh, this week and uh, parked it on the street. And then uh, when he came back out, it was gone. And some ah. he went out and, the, and somebody had seen it, somebody breaking the car and take it. Now they found the car, but it's an adventure to try and get it back. But yeah, that was, I've never had a car stolen before. So that was an adventure. That is that unbelievable. Is wild. I'm so sorry. The funny part is that he didn't have very much gas in it, so they ran out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Well, we're glad that you could laugh at it again. Bob writes. Uh, we'd love to have Bob on because he writes a ton of stories over at Religion News Service, and you can read them. And, and they you'll often hear us, Aubrey and I, talk about them on the show. And so, Bob, we want to start with kind of the biggest story of the week, and that was Dan Darling being let go as a spokesman of NRB, National Religious Broadcasters, around kind of some pro-vaccine statements made on Morning Joe. It was a, a lot of craziness, but but I guess where I want to go is, besides uh, kind of your idea of just the story itself, uh, what does this tell us about uh, just the animosity right now around COVID and vaccines, particularly in the evangelical world? Yeah, I think it just it tells us that vaccines and the whole response to COVID has become very controversial and difficult to talk about it. And, mm. and so, you know, uh, white evangelicals in particular are the least, uh, least like they're the most likely to say they're not going to get vaccinated. Mm. is the way you'd put it. So there, it, you know, um, there's still lots of evangelicals that have gotten vaccinated and, and lots of them take 
uh, COVID very seriously, but I think the toll of the the pandemic and the, this fight over vaccination has for uh, a sizable group of evangelicals become a big thing. So organizations can't talk about it. Even organizations that have had pretty pro-vaccine statements. So if you take the National Religious Broadcasters, where Dan was uh, let go from, you know they have been pretty open about the vaccines allowed them to have their big meetings in person. Mm-hmm. But now yeah. I think it's become so uh, difficult and it's hard to navigate. And then, of course, uh, his departure led to really angry feedback against the NRB. So it's, it's uh, you know, so you have all of a sudden internal conflict become public. Yeah, yeah. And, and Bob, I, you know, th- I'm asking for your opinion here, but do you have any sense of why this conversation feels so volatile right now? Uh, I don't know if I have opinions. I could have some analysis in that, <laughs> I think. Uh, I, we, we, it's a very, I mean, we're, we're in a very difficult time anyway, right? We have all kinds of social and demographic and political and economic pressures on us. And then the COVID has just, I mean, churches have not been able to meet for a year and a half. Uh, people's jobs have disrupt, disrupted. And so there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, controversy and, and, and stress. And the other thing is this, there's just a lot of, uh, an overlying thing is there's a lot of mistrust of institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the institutional leaders that, could guide us through this, pastors, doctors, politicians, public health officials, uh, experts, all of them are now seen with distrust. And so we don't have, uh, it's very hard uh, for folks to find experts they can trust. And we have so much information and uh, not always, you know, out there about different ways to approach COVID, but not always expertise to to analyze what are the best options. So people can find options they think are right and say, well, why aren't we doing this? So it's, it's, it's a this lack of trust and then the, the whole stress of this uh, COVID, which is taking a toll on us. Yeah, yeah. And b- before we move on, I would also love to just point out uh, something really positive from this story, because this was a hard story. But I, I saw a couple interviews where Dan Darling really showed great grace kind of on his way out the door. Like this could have gotten really acrimonious. And I know it did on some level and probably behind closed doors. What does it teach us as Christians, in your opinion, about the way Daniel Darling handled this kind of going out and just showing kind of a lot of grace? You know, I think I think you're right. Um as someone who's reported on a lot of these, a lot of conflicts at religious organizations, they can, uh, once they get started, they don't stop very quickly. And so you have, you know, I think Dan has been, uh, and, and, the and the folks at NRB have been pretty clear that they respect each other, yep. that they, they have been tried not to, they have a very significant disagreement about these, what happened in these statements, but they don't, uh, they don't dislike each other. They have not, uh, they have not been, uh, you know, demonizing the other side. So they have tried to pour some, they have not added gasoline to the fire mm-hmm. is what I would say. Mm-hmm. So there is a, there is a sense of um, when you get in the conflict that you can make it worse, you can make it better. And I have seen organizations where uh, churches, where every time they had a chance to resolve the conflict, they chose to, they chose to, to throw gasoline on it. Yes. Yeah. And so I think there is a there is something going on here in which the parties here do not want their their conflict to to uh, keep going. They want to say, look, this happened. We we're unhappy about it, but they don't want to keep it uh, keep it going and, and, and demonize the other side. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of conflict, you wrote another article about uh, interesting service at a mega church in Tennessee where uh, the church service was disrupted by this conflict that had been going on. Can you talk to us about that story? Sure. So there's a, there's a church in Tennessee called Grace Chapel. It's in Franklin. It's very influential. The governor goes there. Uh, some celebrities go there. Uh, the pastor, Steve Berger, left earlier this year. He stepped down to start a new ministry. He he'd planted the church. Um, he's already caught some controversy. He was in Washington, D.C. on January 6th mm-hmm. and uh, made some comments about uh, what happened at the Capitol that were very controversial. Uh, but he left. And But it turns out he and his successor, who uh, Mr. Ber- uh, Reverend Berger had uh, approved of, have had conflict in the transition. And so that conflict has been mostly behind the scenes at the church, but apparently it came to a head uh, this past week. The new pastor uh, offered to resign, uh, and then uh, the elders said, no, you're not resigning. We still want you here. So they had a a service where they talked about the conflict, and uh, they had some prayers for reconciliation, but uh, Mr. Berger's wife was very unhappy and got up uh, right after they had the prayer and began uh, lambasting the new pastor. And Mm. they had to shut – they had to cut the feed – you know, to the outside world, but then they end up shut down, shutting down that service and the next service because of this. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's one thing after another. It feels like week after week. Uh, again, Bob Smetana, he is a veteran news reporter, religion writer at the religion news service. You can follow him at Bob Smetana. We talked about kind of disagreements between uh, the NRB and, and some stuff going on with vaccines. And then we talked about kind of this crazy thing that happened at a church in Tennessee. I guess I want to ask you, as somebody who reports on these things, um, kind of a bigger picture question. Uh, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback a lot of times going, why do we report bad things about churches? Doesn't that just give us a black eye? I think of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast going on right now and a lot of that feedback. I'm sure you get that all the time. How would you answer that, that that we shouldn't be kind of uh, showing kind of the ugly parts of the church to the world? I, I would answer a couple of things. It's, it's interesting. I was just had a discussion about this the other day. So, uh, and I'll say I was had opened the book of First Samuel, and what's the first thing that happens in First Samuel? Uh, you, uh, there's we find out that the priests are sleeping around and stealing the food. <laughs> so the the Bible itself is very uh, open about the shortcomings of the followers of God, right? Yeah. So God's people do not get a pass um, when it comes for reporting their difficulties. Mm. So that is one thing. So. You know, if we could, if the God is, the Bible doesn't seem to be really interested in protecting God's reputation. Uh, nobody likes to report these things. I think it is important um, to, that people know what's going on in institutions. I, I do think these are, there are um, some real lessons here for institutional leaders about how are they uh, operating and how do they uh, keep out of conflicts. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that makes some sense. It's not very easy to report on, um, sure. but I do think it shows some trends that we, uh, for churches, you know, around transitions are difficult. I think a lot of big churches have not had transitions in pastors, and that's going to be mm-hmm. problematic. I think uh, COVID is going to continue to cause conflicts at congregations. And so it, I think it points out that uh, resolving conflict earlier and also having, um, you know, better guardrails for people 
so that there aren't conflicts or that misconduct doesn't go so far or is important. Mm-hmm. Bob, um, another transition that we're reading about something you wrote is in South Carolina, a pastor quit his church and then followers revolted to get him back. Can you talk to us about that story as well? Yeah, that's a really interesting story, too. So this is another story. So there, there's a, you know, as you know, in a lot of uh, congregations have moved to what's called an elder led model, um, where there's a kind of a, a, a number of uh, folks often elected by the church to serve as elders. There are pastor led models. There are congregational led models. So this church in South Carolina, they had a conflict between the pastor and the elders. The elders of the con- church has a uh, elder led model. The pastor wanted to move to a uh pastor-led model where the staff were the elders, and they couldn't disagree. So they um, they ended up deciding to part ways. The pastor resigned. They, the elders said, well, well, we'll pay you severance. And it was a fairly, um, it was a fairly amicable uh, parting of ways. They get up in the service. They tell the church about this. The church was not happy. People in the congregation were not happy. Within minutes, you know, they began yelling, and then they organized a, uh, a basically hundreds of of congregation members organized uh, what's essentially a coup, you know, or wow. a revolution. They said, well, we want to get rid of these elders and bring our pastors back. So a week after resigning, the pastor was back on stage uh, saying he would come back if they changed the elders to make it, change the bylaws to make it a, a pastor run model. Mm. So it was, uh, it was, I've never seen anything again, lower pastor resigns. He's back so quickly. Uh, and the, the, the problem they have right now is that, the church, the elders ended up resigning and then unresigning. And they did that because the church bylaws have no, uh, they don't make account for what would happen if the elders all resign. Because the mm-hmm. only way to get a new elder is for the elders to nominate a new elder. They're self replicating yeah. So they have no, it's very unclear who is legally in charge of this church, the church staff. <laughs> oh, wow. Because the, the pastor and elders had quit. They had, they organized, they talked to their lawyer, they organized a, uh, you know, emergency meeting to operate some, to adopt some operating guidelines. The elders say, wait, you can't do that. We have to come back and have a peaceful trans, you know, transition and orderly transition. So there's a, there's all kinds of chaos. It's not clear. Uh, the, you know, the new group is moving on. The old elders are saying, wait, you can't do that. Uh, they may end up in court. They may just end up dropping it because functionally the new group is in charge mm. and, the old elders could sue, but I don't know if they want to sue. Uh, but it does. It, it's a great lesson, actually, in uh, church governance. You know, nobody looks at the bylaws or pays attention to them when they join a church or they're in a meeting. But when there's a conflict, those bylaws are the thing that rules. And mm. then you have more. Uh, we saw this at David Platt's church, right? There's a question of whether they follow the bylaws. So, you know, bylaws and organizational governance seems really uh, dry and uninteresting, but it is, you know, it is the backbone and structure that allows uh, a church or institution to function. Yeah. In some ways, I read these stories, I go, churches are strange places (laughs) as as a pastor, as a pastor. Uh, Bob, we love just going through your stories. You did write one called Faith-Based Disaster Relief Groups Balance COVID Safety with Speedy Response to Hurricane Ida. Aubrey and I are going to have Jamie Ayton on tomorrow to talk about Hurricane Ida and and kind of Christian response to it. But talk to us about this story. What are some of the things you learned? What are faith-based disaster relief groups doing to help? So right now, there a lot of them are just on the ground assessing, right? Because the there's still power outage, they're still in the early days. So what they'll end up doing is doing assessments. Uh, 
And then uh, the way the faith-based, uh, our faith, our disaster response uh, system in the U.S. relies heavily on faith-based groups. So the Baptists will come in with chainsaws and, and chop up trees and clean up houses and they'll cook food and the Salvation Army will cook food as well and the Red Cross will deliver it and the Methodists will come in uh, and they end up doing uh, emergency response, but they also do case management afterwards. Uh, and the Presbyterians do long-term discovery and uh, Samaritans first come in and Jewish groups come in and Muslim groups come in. So there's a uh, right now they're in the early days, but they will come in and clean up and feed people and shelter people. Uh, the challenge for them right now is when there's no power, uh, there's not a lot of places that have water. And the third is COVID. They're very concerned about wow. uh, the spread of COVID. So some groups are requiring vaccinations. Almost all of them are requiring people to be masked. They are segre- they're separating people by uh, the state they come from. So the Baptists are doing that instead of having one place where everybody stays, right? That's the way this usually works is volunteers come, they sleep on the church floor. They have big meals together. They go out and do the work. So they're trying to separate them so that people who came together can stay together. And so if there is a COVID outbreak, that would just be that group of people. Um, but they're very concerned. One, they don't want to, uh, you know, Louisiana has a lot of COVID right now. They don't want to bring more COVID and spread things in the community. They also don't want to have the whole thing shut down because of cases of COVID. So they're being very, very, very careful. Interesting. Again, tomorrow, Aubrey and I are going to have Dr. Jamie Ayton. Uh, He's the executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute over at Wheaton College to talk about kind of faith-based groups and how to best help uh, in a time like this. Again, uh, Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Bob Smetana. He is a veteran religion writer and national reporter for the Religion News Network. Find him at religionnews.com. You can also find him on Twitter at, at Bob Smetana. That's at Bob Smetana. Bob, we always appreciate having you on. It's great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Have a great rest of your week. You as well. And uh, hopefully your car doesn't get stolen again. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Again, thanks for joining us. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey, we are thrilled. Special guest right now. Special guest. He is the lead pastor of Renewal Church in West Chicago. That should sound familiar to you all. Uh, He is also married to my co-host, Aubrey, here. That is Kevin Sampson. Kevin, how are you, bud? So good. Thanks, Brian, for uh, having me on today. So fun that you're with us, Kevin. I love this. So, Kevin, we're here because you wrote an article for um, the the Daily Herald called DACA's Fragility Undermines the Future of Immigrant Children. We need permanent immigration reform. Before we dive into the article itself, can you talk to us about what led you to actually write this? Um, A couple of things there. uh, I think in the community we live, I am you know, engage with people, especially young people who are undocumented. And um, there really isn't, uh, you know, a, a great way or a pathway for citizenship. Um, right now, they have something called DACA, which is Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals. But that's being threatened um, through some judges' rulings. And, and so just had the opportunity to write an, an, an op-ed about um, what I see going on and really trying to urge others to kind of lend their voice to comprehensive immigration reform. 
Oh, good for you, Kevin. So uh, what does comprehensive immigration reform even look like? I know that's an enormous uh, question, but what, what are some things very practically that people could get their arms around that you'd like to see happen? Yeah, there's there's really not a I mean, speaking just to DACA, um, what's happening right now is that was an executive order that uh, the Obama administration put into place in 2012. And um, it's right now it's just being threatened. So some people who've already received the ability to work for two years um, are able to keep that, but they're probably not going to allow new applications to come in Um so it's so comprehensive immigration form just really reform creates a pathway so that everyone knows how things work. And so if you've come, you know, as an been brought here undocumented, you're uh, you may have to pay a little fine and um, ways for people to serve um, in our country. Um, but then you're given really a pathway that doesn't change. Um, so you're able to um, head towards um, citizenship. And so you're able to really take advantage of uh, what it means to be an American. Kevin, you're obviously a pastor speaking out about this. Why do you think this issue should matter to the church? So I think part of it is the big thing is you just I just see a lot of young people and a lot of people in general, they they really just come up against some obstacles that really get in the way of helping them flourish and uh, really live successful lives. I think as a pastor, I think what I see in the scriptures is just uh, God continually calling his people to embrace those um, of other ethnicities from other countries and other cultures as family. Hmm. And so underneath it all, it's just more of a burden to be faithful to Jesus Christ and and uh, embrace um, my fellow humanity wherever they're from in a way that God has really embraced me. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, And speaking of the church, Kevin, what would you like to see, or what's one thing a church could do? So maybe a pastor's listening right now. They're like, yeah, you know, I I kind of buy what he's selling here, but I've never really been engaged in this. What's maybe step one or step one and two that a pastor in a church could do? Um, I think you can go to the evangelical immigration table. It's uh, they have a website and you can start to just see uh, some of the things that uh, this organization and this movement is doing. It's connected with Matt Sorens and World Relief. And and uh, I think that's a place to just start educating yourself um, around what's really happening. There's a lot of stories out there in the media and that uh, many of them are not helpful. Um, but the evangelical immigration table uh, really puts resources and, and information together that can really help someone who's curious and trying to figure out how to navigate this as a Christian. They put resources together. That's really helpful. Beyond that, you can really seek out a relationship with someone who um, maybe undocumented or someone else that you may know who is really engaged in this conversation and just learn from them as well. But I think that gap in relationship needs to close. And so to, yeah, to be able to find relationships with people who are engaged in this is incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Kevin, we talk a lot on The Common Good about the power of prayer. And right now we're looking at so much going on in the world. Hurricane Ida, 
Haiti, Afghanistan, and now immigration reform. And just curious, if if our people wanted to have some prayer points, what would you encourage them to be praying about this specific issue? Um, I, I think the in the, the Lord's Prayer says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the will of God is that we would uh, welcome one another in the way that Jesus Christ has welcomed us. So I think you could just start with the Lord's prayer and just ask God to, to, for his will to be made known uh, through his church and through his people. I think that's one. I think um, just pray for the vulnerable in your community. And then, and then I think along with prayer is just as you're reading the scriptures, just pray what you see in God's word. Uh, there's just uh, over and over again, I, I'm amazed that uh, throughout the scriptures, how the Bible really addresses um, this particular issue. Mm-hmm. So I think the more we engage in the scriptures and uh, just pray God's word back to ourselves and with one another, we'll actually see, we'll see God do incredible things. Oh, that's awesome. And Kevin, let me close with this. Uh, what's the pushback you get? You write an article like this, you post something on Facebook. There's always another side. What is the pushback you get? And I'd love to end on a positive side. What's kind of your response, your loving response to that kind of pushback, whatever it is that you get? I, I think the pushback is the, it's been political. People are politicized. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, you have a right wing and left wing responses and and so even with Christians really trying to engage in a biblical uh, way is can be tough because we're, we're just so kind of polarized in our politics. And so most of the, the pushback kind of comes from um, the just some people have been brought here illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a crime, which isn't true, you know, or, you know, we should just welcome them in completely without there being any pathway or any sort of restitution. And and I don't know if, if that's the best way, but it's really hard to engage in this um, from a place of, uh, from the scriptures and just from a place of biblical hospitality. Yeah. And then this really, am I hopeful? Yeah. I mean, I don't know truth be told, I'm, I don't know. Um, I'm not super hopeful for comprehensive immigration reform mm-hmm. um, anytime soon, unfortunately. But I am hopeful that the church, um, I've just seen over and over again, the way Christians do embrace our neighbors and people from um, other nations, especially young people. And it's really brought about great change. So I'm really hopeful in the church and what God can do through his people. Yeah, and uh, and so I'm, yeah, I'm excited about that. Awesome. Again, we'll point you to worldrelief.org. Also, Kevin mentioned the Evangelical Immigration Table. You can find that evangelicalimmigrationtable.com. That's Matt Sorens, who you've heard on the show many times. Uh, and there you can at least learn. You can you can at least learn. Cause as Kevin said, a lot of times we just kind of throw things out there that we don't know about. But there you can get some good information. I'd encourage you to go to thedailyherald.com. There you'll see a big picture of Kevin Sampson <laughs> and, uh, and be able to read his well, uh, really well-written written opinion piece there uh, about DACA and uh, and immigration reform. Kevin, again, is the lead pastor of Renewal Church in West Chicago. Kevin, next time we'll have you on, I'll beat you in a uh, competition again. But for this more serious stuff, great job. Thanks for coming on, bud. 
Hey, you wish. Thanks for having me, Aubrey and Brian. Appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Uh, Coming up next, uh, we want you to stay with us as Aubrey and I talk about prayer. And uh, then we have Dr. Ryan Burge on next hour. You're listening to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, what is the purpose of prayer? And then we're joined by Dr. Ryan Burge, the assistant professor and graduate coordinator at Eastern Illinois University, to talk to us about the nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. This week, especially, there has been a theme on the common good of calling Christians to pray because there is Mm. so much going on in the world that is worth uh, praying about. And I wonder for you, if if someone were to ask you, all right, Pastor Brian, why should I pray? What is the point of prayer? What would you say to them? Yeah, that's a great question. It is... uh... I would start with the fact that the God of the universe has invited us to pray. There you go. So why would we ever, um, you know, I think of the book of Hebrews where it talks about uh, we now have access to God's throne room, right? Through the blood of Jesus, like the veil has been torn and the curtain has been torn. And so if if you were just logically told the God of the universe invites you to come make prayers and petitions, why would you ever say, nah, because <laughs> yeah, I... I- I'm not going to take them up on that. Yeah, I think if we wait till we fully, and this is what Heather Thompson Day is getting at here. I think if we wait until we can answer every question about prayer, like here's exactly how it works. Here's exactly the purpose. Here's exactly how God works. Then, yeah, we're probably never going to pray. But as we see it as not just obedience, but opportunity, hey, you are welcome to come. And you are welcome to pour your heart out to the God of the universe who will hear you. Man, I can't imagine then going, ah, I don't know. Doesn't seem like something worth <laughs> my time to do. Right. <laughs> and so I would completely start there that even if you don't, because people will all the time or often they'll ask us as pastors, right? How does prayer work? Mm-hmm. Or what's it? I don't know. <laughs> right. I know that prayer works. I know that we are instructed to pray. I know that Jesus prayed. And I know that it is an opportunity. Then once we see it as those things, I think the only response is to pray and pray some more. If, if again, if we're waiting until we have everything lined up and perfect and understood, then yeah, we'll probably never pray. Yeah, that's exactly right, Brian. The article that Brian just referenced is one by Heather Thompson Day. She's been on the show before. She's an author, a speaker, all around godly woman. She wrote something called She Didn't Believe. But God heard her cry. This is over at Christianity Today. And Heather tells the story, essentially, of a friend of hers who was not a Christian. And uh, they actually was a student of hers. I'm sorry. She was Mm -hmm. teaching a communication course. This was a student of hers. And um, this woman was not a Christian. But Heather felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to give this woman all the money that was in her wallet. Okay. And she was like, this is weird. I don't know if I should do this. I can't just hand students my money like this is probably inappropriate but she um eventually she didn't do it then she regretted it then she went back to work after a break and she kept hearing the holy spirit say give this student the money in your wallet she Mm -hmm. finally did it okay she said this is going to be very strange i'm a christian 
when you walked into my class, God told me to give you this $40. I'm sorry if this is weird. Essentially, that's me recapping (laughs) a little bit. But then here's the incredible thing. This student who did not believe in, in God said this, before I stepped in this class, I did something that I have not done in years. And then she whispered, tears streaming down her face, I prayed. Mm. And eventually the money, what Heather found out later, was for a box of diapers for her six-month-old baby. And what Heather's point is this. Sometimes Christians say a lot that prayer is more about us than it is about God, or it's more about God changing us than it is about God moving. But if you think of that story, I mean, that was a moment where this woman prayed and uh, God used Heather in yeah. an incredible way, really to transform and to move in power in this woman's that's life. Right. And so right. I think that's something like we have to remember that in our prayers, that the Holy Spirit is at work and is already at work before we even realize it, is at work in other people's lives. And that when we, when something is stirred in our hearts in relationship to prayer, that's because God wants to do something through us. And mm. we have no idea the impact that that's going to make. I think that's such a powerful, powerful story. Brian, okay, if if we've got listeners here going, okay, how do I pray? It has been a long time, or maybe I've never prayed before because I've never really understood it. Can you give our folks just some like helpful handholds? How do I pray? Yeah, that's great. Uh, I would say without guilt and shame, right? There you go. go. Going, I must get this right. We've mm-hmm. all been there where we've started to pray and our minds have gone off or we've fallen asleep or yeah, whatever. Totally, else it might totally. Be. Uh, and so I would start by picturing yourself just talking to your dad, talking mm, to your, your friend, like, like there, there needs to be seen this relational element. Yes. Jesus says, I, uh, Jesus taught us how to pray with the Lord's prayer. Right. So there, there's great structure there, but, mm-hmm. but before the structure, I would, I would encourage that person out there to think about posture and that posture being, this is a conversation. This is not like a, I have to chant these four things perfectly correctly. And that opens the door to God hearing me. But instead he invites us to pray as a father invites his children to come and talk to him. Mm. Right? Like I would never look at my kids and be like, you know what? I hear what you're saying, but you didn't ask me correctly. (laughs) And so therefore I'm not going to. And so I like to pray and walk. I like to, this time of year, especially I like to go outside and just kind of walk in God's creation. I know that's not always possible in the Chicagoland right. area come January and February, but I I tend to do better with movement and praying. Others of you write your prayers well. You've talked about being an early morning person, mm-hmm. other people late at night. I, I don't get so caught up in the mechanics of it and miss out in just the invitation of it. Let me pray. I'm just going to start talking to God and let's see what happens. I, I I would start there. Where would you Where would you go with that? You know, I have a friend who her whole Instagram page is just short prayers, and they're just things like, "Lord, help me." God, can you find this for me? Mm. Jesus, where are you? I mean, just very, like, and I think start there. Like, yeah. you know, we don't have to be long winded and use holy highfalutin language. Like, just like Brian said, talk to God as if you're talking to your father or your mm. friend, someone you trust and just like, God, I need you. 
And that's a prayer, right? We can, I think the beautiful thing about prayer is all of it's good. There's no shame and guilt. You pray in the car, you can pray with a friend, you pray at church when you're gathered with other believers. Like Brian said, pray on a walk. I journal my prayers. There are great prayer books out there. There's one that uh, Kevin and I are going through right now called Every Moment Holy. It's a Mm. book of like liturgical prayers and they're for prayer. It's like prayers before dinner, prayers for a new house, prayers when you read a book you really liked. Prayers when you're planting a garden, like it's everything. And it just gives you ways to pray. I think the heart of prayer ultimately is worship. And so, you know, I I think we can begin our prayers by praising God for who he is and then just being like, all right, God, man, I'm here and I need you to show up in this one situation. And that's yeah. enough. Like Brian said, this is an invitation from God. It is not something you'll do wrong. It is an opportunity to commune with the creator of the universe, which is like, I think a miracle we actually forget about. Yes. Or we take it for granted. Like the actual God of the universe wants to commune with us through prayer. That mm. is such an incredible gift. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say one last thing about prayer. I'd say be okay. A lot of times here in in America and in the West, we're not okay with mystery. Mm. I'd say be okay with mystery. Good, Brian. And and allow that. Don't allow the lack of certainty exactly how everything works to stop you from praying. Go, man, this is a beautiful mystery. I don't really get it, but I'm go- I know I've been invited and I'm going to pray and God's either going to answer what I ask or he's going to work in me. Whatever else is going to happen, I know that God is faithful and God is good. So be okay with mystery as well. I love that. That's great. Well, coming up next, we're joined by the author of a book called The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they're going. That's Dr. Ryan Burge. Be sure to stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Ryan Burge. He's an assistant professor and graduate coordinator at Eastern Illinois University. He's the lead pastor at American Baptist Church, and he's the author of a book that we're going to talk about. It is called The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, and Where They Are Going. Ryan, thanks so much for being here with us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who may not know you, can you introduce yourself so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. I have a, I have a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University. Uh, I teach at Eastern Illinois, like you just said. Uh, my area of, of research is in religion and politics, and specifically, I write a lot about the religiously unaffiliated, the rise of that group, the importance they have to the American electorate, American society. Um, I have been a pastor for my entire adult life, basically, since I was 20 years old in the American Baptist churches. Uh, I've been married for almost 14 years and have two mm. little boys. One is nine and one is seven. Oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome. Ryan, I, I want to start with your two jobs. And as we said, Aubrey and I are both pastors as well. What's it like to be a professor and uh, so you're in academia, you're with students and also a pastor preaching sermons. How do those work with each other? Is that an easy kind of flow between? Talk to me about having those two jobs. Yeah. So I guess for me, it seems normal because I don't know anything else. You know, <laughs> um, uh, you know what, whatever's normal is what you're used to. And so <laughs> that's right. So, you know, since I was 20 years old, I was a youth pastor and I was an undergrad. And then when I was in grad school, I was a pastor. And now that I have, a, uh, you know, a professor, I'm also a pastor. So it just seems like what I do is just my natural mm. workflow. But for other people, it seems interesting. I think the media, you know, kind of the mainstream media finds it really, really interesting because I think the Venn diagram of pastors and academics don't overlap very much. That's right. So I'm, That's true. You know, so I'm, 
I'm in that little sliver right there, but actually I think it makes me a better pastor and a better academic. You know, I'm a better pastor because I understand the social science of what's going on in American society. Mm-hmm. So I can, and sometimes during sermons, I go on like a little five minute tangent about like new research on this, that, and the other thing and what it tells us about people and human nature and relationships. And then, you know, as an academic, when I do my academic work, you know, it's not just like cold scientific stuff for me. It's actual real things that I see every Sunday. And part of the impetus of writing the book was I saw my congregation going from 50 people uh, on an average Sunday in 2006 to we had nine in worship um, last Sunday. So, you know, a part of that's like me trying to answer selfishly. It's me trying to answer my own questions about what's happening in my life. And then by extension, other people get to enjoy my pursuit of understanding what's going on in the world. Yeah. And Ryan, it's it's so interesting to hear you say this is not what we're here to talk about, but almost every pastor I know, that's how their churches are. And they, churches are just going down as far as Sunday morning, that Sunday morning experience. And, you know, I'd be interested because what you're talking about is this concept, the nuns, people who are essentially leaving church. And so I would love to know, I, I guess this is a two part question. One, what is the deal? <laughs> Why do you think those numbers are going down? I think more importantly and more generally speaking about your book, who are the nuns? Yeah, so let's start second part first. The nuns are three groups in my book. Uh, atheists, 6% of the population. Agnostics, 6% of the population, which you probably have heard quite a bit about that. It seems like when everyone thinks of the nuns, that's what they think of, those right. three groups. But the third group is called nothing in particular because that's actually the survey response option at the bottom of it's kind of I call it the shrug option where you're like, well, I'm not, <laughs> you know, like I'm not an atheist, but I'm not a Protestant or a Catholic or, you know, a Buddhist either. So I'm just going to check that box. And that box grew from 15 percent in 2008 to 20 percent in 2020. They're literally the fastest wow. growing religious group in America today. Wow. Um, they're, they're probably, depending on how you cut up Protestants, they're probably the largest religious group in America today, nothing in particulars. And, you know, what's interesting about them is they have very low education. Only 20 percent of them have a four year college degree for atheists mm. it's 47 percent. Wow. So, you know, like these groups are not at all the same thing. And so, you know, if you put five nuns in a room, three are nothing in particular. One's an atheist and one's an agnostic. So mm. we're looking at the wrong thing. You know, we're looking at the wrong people by looking at the atheist and agnostic so much. So that's mm. that's part of the reason I wrote the book is to say, hey, look at the right thing. You know, look at actually what, what's really happening, not what the media tells you the nuns look like. They, and so why are the nuns growing? It's a bunch of reasons. I go through seven or eight in my book, but I think one of them is, is secularization. Yeah. America was just destined to become a more secular country over time because we sort of follow the lead of Western Europe. And after the war in Western Europe, most countries became secular almost overnight. You know, in places like France and Great Britain and Italy, uh, the share of people who go to church even once a year is le- way less than 20 percent. So that was going to happen to America. It just took a lot longer and went a lot slower than we expected it to be. Mm. But other things have accelerated that. I think it's impossible to disregard the impact that politics has had yeah. um, on the religious landscape. I think for a lot of white people in America, especially to be a Christian is to be a Republican. Um, so if you're a white liberal, you just don't feel like the church is for you. Um, you don't find a church that's welcoming and affirming or, you know, you know, is liberal politically. The other thing is the Internet. I don't mm-hmm. think we can fully understand what this World Wide Web has done to our understanding of the world. I mean, in the book I talk about, imagine you're an atheist who was born in Mississippi in 1950. You would never tell anybody that in person because they would, right, you know, throw right. you out of your house and your community and your world. And so, but imagine you're an atheist born in Mississippi in 1990. 
Now you can go online and Google Atheists of Mississippi and find a subreddit or find a forum or find a Facebook mm. group or whatever it is. And now you don't feel like you're alone anymore. Mm. And now you're more willing to say what you actually were the whole time. So maybe what we're actually seeing is what what's really been going on in America is we've been nuns for a long time. It's just people weren't honest on surveys because they couldn't find other people like them. And the Internet's made that easier. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, Ron, I think most people who would listen uh, – would kind of think, well, all the nuns are young people, right? They're all millennials. They're all like just out of college. What's kind of the breakdown of the age demographic of this growing uh, nuns, as you call them? Yeah. So fascinatingly enough, they are, they are, the average atheist is just as old as the average American. So they're not, you know, to think they're younger than the average person is actually statistically inaccurate and nothing in particular is actually slightly older than the average American. That's something that, you know, when you become a third of the population, you don't look like a, a weird subsegment anymore. You look like America. Wow. So, you know, that that's the thing is people think like they they were 5% of America in 1972. Like that's a rounding error on surveys, right? You're talking about 50 people out of a thousand were nuns. And now it's closer to 300 or 350 in a thousand person sample. So now the other thing that's happening is that we're seeing nuns. It used to be the nuns were liberals, lots and lots of liberal nuns. Right. We're seeing more and more conservative nuns now, especially in the nothing in particular category. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and they used to be just white, upper educated. Now it's, it's people from all races. For instance, the most nuns group in America today are Asian Americans. Over 45% of Asian wow. Americans have no religious affiliation. And Hispanics are actually the most religious in America today. Only 28% of them are nuns. So, you know, it's really cutting through every segment of American society. The other thing we're seeing is that we're seeing older nuns now be grandparents or parents and raising their kids to be nuns as well. That never used to happen. So it's this radical change in American society. And it's happened so incredibly quickly that social science, I don't think, has done a good job of keeping up with what's really going on on the ground when it comes to religion. I think we got to do a better job of trying to understand this group in a more meaningful way going forward. Yeah. And I think with that in mind, Ryan, um, you know, Brian and I are church planters. You're in ministry as well. And I think this is such important information for us as church leaders to have so that we can sort of strategize the future of the church. Like, I think this needs to change our evangelism efforts, even our discipleship. Do you have any thoughts about that? Like, what can we start doing to engage more meaningfully with those nuns? Yeah. So I wrote a piece for the Gospel Coalition where I said, stop trying to debate atheists because it's a waste of time. Mm. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. If you look at the data and and there's a section in the book where I use panel data, which asks the same people the same questions in 2010, 12 and 14. So you can track individual level movement across religion. What we found is that over 95 percent of atheists and agnostics are still atheists or agnostics four years later. They don't change. But the nothing in particulars, 60% of them were still nothing in particular four years later. 20% of them became atheists or agnostics. And then 20% of them became Christians four years later. Right. Wow. So, and that's a big chunk. So it's 20% of 20% of the population. That's 4% of Americans went from being a nun to being a Christian in a four-year period of time. That is where the mission field is. It's not in debating atheists or agnostics. Mm, that's, that's such a good word for us. Okay, Ryan. Uh, you okay, Ryan? You wrote an article called "Okay, Millennial." Um, don't blame the boomers for the decline of religion in America. That was over at the Religion News Service. I would love for you to unpack that article for us. Yeah, so I, I'm always interested in, in you know who who did this, what changed, you know what, what you know what age of people caused all this all these things to shift. And I do want to be very clear: boomers are less religious now than they were 30 years ago. 
Okay. Wow. I mean, but it's, it's a more subtle change for them. So around uh, the 1970s, about thir- uh, about 13% of boomers had no religious affiliation today. It's about 18%. So a, a rise, but not like a meteoric exponential type of rise. But if you look at the numbers, people always think that like this thing sort of happened with Generation X. Interestingly enough, it didn't really happen with Generation X. Generation mm-hmm. X looks a lot more like baby boomers religiously than they do with the millennial generation, right? Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to kind of dig into like what was the last religious you know, generation in American history. And I think the data is really clear. It's Generation X, which are those people born before 1980. So around between 1965 and 1980 are people we call mm. Generation X. They're the last group I can say, okay, they were generically Christian and relatively devout too in terms of church attendance and things like that. Millennials went on a completely different path than, you know, their older siblings, the Gen X folks. So I was born in 1982. I'm an older millennial. If you look at our data, we look almost exactly like Generation Z. Today, about 40% of millennials have no religious affiliation, which is almost exact Generation Z, which by the way, they're just coming of age now. The oldest members are 25 years old. About 43 or 44% of Generation Z have no religious affiliation. Wow. So, yeah. So when we talk about what, 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 you know, when, what changed, it definitely changed with the millennial generation. And obviously the question is, well, why? And we talked a little bit about that last segment, but I think it's so important to point out that we are the first generation to grow up with the Internet widespread mm-hmm. use of, you know, social media and text messaging and, and you know, Google searching mm-hmm. and things like that. That's part of it. And I think all of us can understand that like growing up with the internet changed everything about American society. Yeah. But the other thing is we were raised by boomers mm-hmm. and boomers by and large, well, that's when evangelicalism hit its peak. For instance, mm-hmm. I was born in 1982. Evangelicalism hit its peak in America in the mid 1990s. And I grew up in a church like that, yeah. that, you know, became very, very conservative politically and religiously while I was a member of that church. I remember mm-hmm. having huge fights and splits and arguments about that in the pews, you know, wow. every Sunday. And for me, I'm lucky enough for whatever reason that God kind of pulled me into a different religious tradition, a different Christian tradition. But for many of my friends, they could not stomach the fighting and the politics and the right wing stuff. And so many of them left and became a nun um, because they had, they felt like they had no other option and they couldn't come to a church every Sunday. They just had to hold their nose half the time and plug their ears or walk out. So I think the boomers did have some impact and we can blame them at some level for kind of pushing the millennials out by making American religion. So, you know, one note, so conservative yeah. over time. So, Oh, that's fascinating. Ryan, what about t- all as well uh, as thinking about reasons for this rise in the nuns, um, when I was I, I was born in 1977, so I'm a little bit older than you. When I was a kid, there was nothing to do on Sunday morning, right? Everybody went to church. Now I'm raising kids who have baseball on Sunday morning, and they've got this. Like there's nothing. There's a busyness factor. That might seem like a small thing, but how much of a factor is just Sunday busyness to then people just not even really thinking about religion? Yeah, I like my, my my social science hat on for a second and wonder what what caused what there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe the sports thing rose up because no one pushed back when they had the, they scheduled that first game on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. You know, for a long time, it's like, oh, we can't schedule a, a you know a trip, a, a baseball travel baseball league on a Sunday because everyone has to go to church. And then someone did it once, and no one said, well, we can't go because we have to go to church. Yeah. They said, well, okay, right? It becomes okay for us to schedule things on the weekends when we couldn't before. So I wonder if it's the 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 dereligioning of America led to the more busyness on the weekends, or if the more busyness led to the dereligioning of America. That's the, th- the hard thing about society is you can't figure out what caused what, what's the first yeah. cause. And I think it was kind of both things 
in tandem, I think the reality is that most people, I think we have a, a we, we paint a picture of what America used to look like religiously that just doesn't exist. We were never this deeply devout country where mm. 75% of Americans went to church. People lied on surveys for a long time because wow. if someone asks you on a survey, what, you know, what are you religiously? You don't want to look at someone on a face and go, I'm an atheist, <laughs> you know, right, especially right. Th- Right. So like 30 or 40 years ago, people would lie. We call it social desirability bias. And they lie about all kinds of stuff, whether it be drug use or sex or pornography or Mm. church. Right. So the thing that's also happened with surveys, which I think is really interesting, is we've moved a lot of them from face to face administration to online administration. So now you just log into a website and take a survey. And what we know is that when people look at a computer screen, they're much more honest because they don't have to, you know, like look at you and go, I'm an atheist. They can just click the box next to atheist and yeah. hit submit and go to the next question. So I actually think, you know, a lot of people see these numbers and get really sad. But I say, like, there's a silver lining to all this because we're actually seeing America for what it is, yeah. not what people, you know, the facade that people have been putting on. And, you know, like they talk about in 12 step, the first, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. Well, the first step here is admitting that, you know, things aren't what we thought they were. We were kind of mm. floating around on a cloud of, of social desirability bias for a long time. And now we're seeing America for what it actually is. And it's a lot less religious than we thought it was. Mm. Wow. That is so interesting to hear all of this, Ryan. One of the questions that we like to ask pastors that are on the show, just, you know, thinking about the church not just over the past year and a half or so, but really just the changing American religious landscape overall. Are you hopeful for the church in America? I am. I mean, I always have to be hopeful. I don't think there's no alternative in my world. I mean, what's the alternative? (laughs) Stare into the abyss for a while. I do think there's going to be, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think, you know, right now what we're seeing is the decline of what are called mainline churches, which is what my tradition is part of. Those are the United Methodists, the American Baptist, the United Church of Christ, the Episcopalian. Churches like that are in, in, in a bad space right now. But I do think there's going to be a resurgence where a lot of people are going to come up through a church system where they're like, I love Jesus, but I don't love all the politics. I don't like the fact that women can't preach. I don't like all the right wing stuff. And maybe they're going to come back to those sort of moderate churches to buoy them. I think the thing about American religion is people need to have choice. You know, no matter what you are, what you believe, you should have, especially if you're a Christian, you should have a multitude of choices between very, very conservative and very, very liberal. And unfortunately, in a lot of places in America, we only give them one choice right now, which is very, very conservative. And if that's their only choice, what they do is they pick none. And, they, and I think we can all admit that's a bad outcome. I'd rather have yeah. people go to an Episcopalian church than become a nun. Just from a social science perspective, church does so many good things for society. It builds social capital. It helps people know how to fundraise. It helps people know how to, you know, campaign. It creates these ties between communities. It, you know, when things bad things happen, who do you rely on? A church community. Yeah. You're a nun. You don't have that. So I think having all different kinds of churches for all different kinds of people is a very good thing for you personally as a human being, but also for American society at the same time. Oh, that's great. Ryan, before we let you go, this has been wonderful, super helpful for people who are intrigued to learn more or to follow you on social media. Where can people read your stuff? Where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, so at Ryan Burge, R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E on Twitter is really the center of my social world. I post graphs there pretty much every day, you know, links to my writing, things like that. My personal website is ryanburge.net. Um, I co-founded a website called Religion in Public, religionandpublic.blog. It's all social scientists who do quantitative, you know, research on American religion and politics and how those things interact with each other. My, my book you just talked about, The Nuns, Where They Came From, Who They Are, Where They're Going, just came out from Fortress Press in March. And I have a new book coming out next March called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. It's also available to pre-order on Amazon right now. That is awesome. Congratulations on that, Ryan. And thanks so much for being here with us today. 
Thank you. My pleasure. Dr. Ryan Burge is the assistant professor and graduate coordinator at Eastern Illinois University and the author of this book we've been talking about. Go and get yourself one right now. The Nuns, where they came from, who they are and where they are going. Stick around as we return. Brian and I are going to be talking about encouraging others, showing them compassion and kindness. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us today. Brian, I read this uh, tweet from Scott Sauls. He's a friend of the show and a pastor you and I both really, I think, admire and, and like to learn from. And he said this. This was on Twitter, I believe, uh, yesterday. He says, nearly every person you meet is insecure, overwhelmed, and under-encouraged. Mm-hmm. Consider taking some time off from telling people how disappointed you are in them. Everyone knows already that they fall short. Instead, show some compassion and be kind. People are starved for this. Whew, I wanted to share that today because I that hit me really hard. I thought that was very real. What do you think as I just read that to you? So we've gotten to know him a little bit through his writings and having him on the show. That is classic Scott Saul's there. Yeah, I think that's why yeah. people like myself and you are drawn to him mm-hmm. because he's very honest. And uh, the, I think the thing that jumped out to me in the first part of his tweet there. Uh, that first sentence is saying nearly every person you meet, like I understand insecure. I understand overwhelmed. It's that phrase under encouraged that kind of hit me because mm-hmm. that has to do with other people, right? Like, are right. we, are right. we encouraging one another? Like, right. you know, a lot of times I'm insecure for reasons that are, are centered on me. Like I'm causing my insecurity or I'm making choices that are making me overwhelmed. But this under encourage speaks more to our church culture and our culture at large that says, are we just overly critical of one another? And it's, it's leaving us in a spot where we are therefore under encouraged that, you know, you just take shot after shot after yeah. shot. Or I, I think about like, you know, you go to the ocean and things just to get beat on by a wave over and over and over again, it's, eventually it's going to give way. Uh, and mm. this idea that that we are under-encouraged because we're not in a society that does really well at encouragement, but instead does very well at uh, criticalness um, is yep. not biblical. And right. I think it's having an effect over time. You and I are seeing it uh, in the lives of pastors that we yeah, know we in our – I mean, let's just be really frank in our own lives as yes. pastors. Yes. Uh, but also beyond pastors, I do think that, that we need to get back to just giving really, um, deep thought into who can I encourage today? How can yeah. I be an encourager without being a liar? Uh, right. how can I be an encourager? I think, I think Scott Sauls is spot on here. Yeah. I agree. I, I also think I know a lot of people who have, um, really encouraging words for someone, but they don't take the time to share those with that person, maybe Mm -hmm. because life is busy or because they don't realize what a difference it will make. And I would say if God brings something to mind about another person, this is actually something I write about in my upcoming book, Known, by the way. I didn't mean to plug the book, but (laughs) this is something that I do write about. um, 
we need to name people well. And what I mean is with intentionality, I do think it's really important to say to people, I see this in you. I notice this about you. This is this really cool thing. Even if it's like a text message that you send, even yeah. if it's just a quick like, hey, I've been meaning to tell you this, but this thing about you is really, really encouraging or cool or, or whatever. That changes people's lives. Because I agree with what Saul said, because so many of us are walking around knowing how how uh, much we fall short. And a simple kind word makes all the difference. Yeah. There's actually um, an, an older article, but I thought it was really helpful at outreachmagazine.com and simple ways for leaders to encourage others. I think this is not just for leaders, but for everybody. And there's a few tips. I, I want to read these to you and have you respo- respond, Brian. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me read the first three. The first one is communicate hope. Because life can be difficult, it's so important for us to speak um, positively about the future. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is to make conversation about the other person. And I think this is a skill set that all Christians need. It is so helpful to ask people questions, listen to their stories, make the conversation about them. And then the um, third one, and then we'll pause. I'll let you respond to those. Express belief. And what this author says is few things in life encourage me more than when someone I trust and respect believes in me and lets me know that. What do you think about those first three tips? I mean, just think if you got these on a regular basis, what it would do for you. Like, uh, I, I'm particularly drawn to number three there, like this, this express belief in that other person. Like, Hey, here's mm-hmm. what I see. Here's how God's gifted you. And I believe it. I mean, think about any time anybody has looked at you and said, I believe in you. Yeah. Like, I, I believe that even if things are going badly now, even if things are hard now, even if things are going sideways now, I believe in you. Just those words, I think change the narrative for us. Like, okay, somebody close to me, somebody I respect, somebody I love believes in me and has expressed this belief and kind of set a hopeful path for me. So I'm going to go. I I just think that lifts us up. So again, uh, as opposed to looking at people close to us and going, you know what's wrong with you? (laughs) Right. Or And that's that's important. Mm -hmm. But when that is the common refrain, of course, then we are going to be broken people who just are like, I have no... self-confidence yeah, at all. Be yeah. a person who speaks belief and hope into the friends around us. Oh, so good. All right. Let me read these last four and you can respond to these. Uh, this author says, don't overlook the little things. Um, this goes back to what we were talking about. Write a personal note, send a text message, tell something encouraging that you notice about them. Uh, the next one is open doors of inclusion. Invite People, I think mm. that is such a good word for all of us. So many of us feel lonely and isolated simply by saying, hey, want to join me? Want to come to this thing I'm having? People love to feel invited. Uh, the next one is create opportunities for growth. This is specifically for leaders. If you can advance someone's growth, pour into their life, mm-hmm. mentor them, give them opportunities. That's so encouraging for people. And then um, the last one in this article, this is by Dan Ryland again at outreachmagazine.com. It says, pray on the spot. I think that's a really mm. important one. That if, if people are uh, discouraged, you can say, hey, can I pray for you right now? And you just do it right there in the lobby of the church right. or right there in their home or wherever you are. All right, Brian, what do you think about those? I mean, again, uh, these are very helpful for us. Yeah. I love that uh, that idea of little things mm-hmm. because uh, so much of what we always talk about is changing the world and you know doing these huge things that sometimes to A, do something small for a, another person, like you said, write a note. 
uh, or what make a phone call or shoot a text or whatever, but also encouraging them for the little things you see them doing well. Yeah. Hey, like I know your church isn't 10,000 people, but like you're, you're doing a great job caring for, you know, like it's that kind of thing. Cause sometimes, uh, Everything in our culture seems bigger is always better, right? And mm, so yep. if if I don't have those in my life, th- then I feel, you know, discouraged. And so I think regularly encouraging people, even with the little things you see them doing, well, hey, you know what? You're a great parent. Hey, you're doing this. Yeah. I think really, really can build somebody up. And there's nothing too small. Like you said, a handwritten note. When's the last time you got a handwritten note in the mail or from someone and you went, that was encouraging and you went, and that was a waste of time. I mean, like, really? I no, I like that. save them. I like, oh, I'm going right. to need this again. Yeah, that's right. that's so right. True. So do little things. I guess our call here is to be an encourager, not a liar. Okay. If you need to speak hard words to someone, yeah, do it. But so much of our culture is centered around criticalness that I don't think the church can be. We've got to be people mm-hmm. who are encouragers. Yeah, that's such a good word. Well, we hope that encourages you today. Thanks so much for joining us today. Be sure to come back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.